Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast, brought to you by the Evergreen Network. The Media Mavens Podcast is where you'll hear the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And here is your host of the Media Mavens Podcast. She is the original Media Maven, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller, CEO of Access Entertainment, and your host for Media Mavens Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Pirate. Hey, Joey, what's up? Very, uh, everything's going very well. Uh, joining you from the Blanket Fort in Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> You're so chill right now. It's a morning. Yeah. It's a morning podcast. We all need yeah. coffee. That's the problem. Okay, so I'm super excited. We have Henrik Jakobsen. And Henrik, welcome to the show. You are literally one of our space program series experts. I'm super excited you're here because you're the chairman for the Emergency Asteroid Defense Project, and you're based out of Copenhagen. So one, welcome to the show, and thank you for staying up late for us this time. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you for having me. Yeah, it's uh, 7 p.m. here, uh, also chilly, uh, somewhat late for coffee, but uh, I'm thrilled to be here and um, to tell you guys about how it will be um, defending the Earth against asteroid in many ways. Why, uh, how we are not, and uh, and how that's an issue in general as as the human species and the whole problem about it. So um, I love this because we've done so much in regards to space in our series. But like I actually, I never knew. I mean, we all know that there's we have to keep the earth protected. We all know there's so much with space and technology and the dynamics of gravity and everything out there, the unknown. But I never yeah, thought yeah. there was an actual asteroid defense project. I literally had no idea until we met you. I mean, so tell us what this is about because you're the chairman. So did you, were you the founder? And like, how did, is this the only defense for asteroids or what, give us the history of this. Well, in a way, I started where, where you started uh, in the, that I didn't realize that there was a need for it or that there was anybody else defending against the asteroids either. How did you know there was, I mean, I don't want to ask a stupid question, but when and how did you realize there's a need for it? 2014, I was engaged in crowdfunding, uh, in fact, uh, which is an entirely different thing altogether, but, you know, uh, can be used for funding many things. And on this Facebook uh, group for uh, crowdfunding entrepreneurs. Some guy asked a serial entrepreneur, uh, San Egelon, he was called, or is called, whether um, it was possible to crowdfund an asteroid defense. And uh, and I'm the kind of guy who just said, let's go for it. So I commented on that and said, um, maybe, yeah, sure, let's do it. Uh, so, so basically that's um, that's where we started and then and I entered the NGO that was being created uh, together with this uh, founder as the co-founder, the um, chairman later on, and uh, and the project manager in uh, in running it. And and from from five minutes before that, I didn't realize that there was a need for asteroid defense. So I I learned how there's an ex- actually a huge community of asteroid defenders, many of them in in the U.S. And uh, many of them looking for methods to deflect asteroids or divert them, or, or some of some methods are even freakier, such as putting paint around it or some sort of plastic to to have the sun deflected, do uh, something that one would think that you have had to have a lot of time doing, which you often don't. So, so there's a lot of uh, things that people are working on. 
most of all, and most organizations, including the governmental ones, such as NASA and ESA, are first and foremost looking into how we can find them all. We can make sure that, that we can see them. We, we can, because the issue is that not only don't we have a method right now on how to deflect them, and we don't have a good one, and especially if it's coming fast, we also don't know about where most of them are. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so that's a big issue if they drop down once in a while, and uh, they do. So there was an, um, in 1908 in um, Tunguska in uh, Siberia. I don't know if, if any of you have heard about that. You're yeah. nodding, yeah. Joe. Uh, you have. Uh, an asteroid exploded in, um, in the air over a city called Chelyabinsk, and some people were hurt. Glasses of the whole city exploded. And um, the size of that asteroid is one that on average drops down statistically on Earth uh, every 100 years. And uh, that average means that it could, um, it could potentially be in 500 years, but it could also be five asteroids um, within the next 100 years. And it could be in a city like Chelyabinsk or, or in the water creating a tsunami uh, and these sizes sufficiently large enough to destroy uh, a whole city. And it doesn't take a genius to realize that that most modern cities of a larger size uh, having a, an asteroid that besides the unfortunate death of a, of a lot of people would, would have a global impact. Right. So it's actually a huge issue compared to, to things like um, earthquakes and tsunamis and other things that strikes, whereas um, this is one where you can actually do something about it. So some people are looking into what, what what could we do? And the most prevalent method that the people with the most money are working on, and that would be um, governmental organizations such as NASA, are ones where you need to have a spacecraft of a sort to uh, get sufficiently close to the asteroid to um, move it out of the orbit where you suspect that that will have it land on Earth so, so give it another trajectory, and th- that will ensure that it won't land. And the only problem with, with that method is, the good thing about that method that, that people like is that, that is, is political correct. The problem with the method is that it needs about up to 10 years, because you need to, if, it, if you're going to change the directory of the asteroid, you need a lot of time to do it. Whereas um, the deflection method that we are advocating is one in collaboration with um, Professor Bong Rui uh, of an asteroid department at Iowa State University, which is you have to blow it up. And uh, we actually had a um, space lawyer. I don't know, you you probably didn't realize that there was something called space lawyer, Sarah. Uh, I, we actually found this. I found this out a little while ago. We have actually a space lawyer coming on, and I was laughing why there would be a space lawyer. I mean, what's there to defend up there? But it does make sense as we're talking to more people about this. Yeah, and I haven't looked into to to the whole uh, space law field, but I imagine that it was probably relevant already at the space race between the U.S. and Russia many years ago. So there could be a lot of reasons uh, why. And uh, what I didn't realize there were space lawyers at the time. But this guy, Franz von der Dunk from um, the Netherlands, made a study for us showing how using this method that we're advocating for, and it's called a with a vehicle called a high V, hypervelocity um, asteroid detection vehicle, to blow it up, make a crater first, 
so that the explosion will be sufficient to, to destroy it, that it is actually acceptable or could be acceptable. Of course, you couldn't say anything on behalf of a governmental uh, or intergovernmental agency, but, but that it would be acceptable according to law if it meant that there was a global catastrophe that needed to be prevented because of it. So um, so that's something. The method is usable. And it's, uh, the, the, the issue with this uh, or the, the, the reason for this method is that it, it is one that can theoretically, because we haven't built a high V, unfortunately, cost um, the cheapest is uh, if we can hitch a ride on, on a rocket, is $170 million. But um, they just proposed for just for the HB equipment or machinery to blow up the asteroid is 175 million dollars. 170 million the cheapest, uh, but, according to the calculations. When we, when we last have you have you guys used this? Because like I have a few questions, but I kind of want to stop and pause for a second because there's a few no, questions I think I have leading up to this because there's so much more to talk about. You guys did a GoFundMe. To start the yeah, we, we did exactly yeah, we, because we wanted to see, but that um, has to be in the millions of dollars. Like a GoFundMe, did that actually work? No, it didn't. I mean, it was a brilliant yeah. idea to use GoFundMe. That's what GoFundMe's for. But I, I love the story that you use that for this. And um, yeah, and it was, it was interesting because um, it was a bit of an experiment as well, and it teaches us a lot about the difficulties because doing a, a making an asteroid defense or having an, an NGO. Is advocating for that and uh, bringing uh, together partners for an asteroid defense global catastrophe kind of project is not something that's very relatable to people. Um, it would be relatable once we see a uh, asteroid coming our way. It would suddenly become very relatable. <laughs> very, very much so, Joe. And I imagine if the Tunguska happened in 2008, uh, we would have a much more successful company campaign. So, uh, with so, the, so the only way to blow up an asteroid, I, this is like fascinating to me, because you have to track them. And the only way to, you yeah. have to obviously, you can only track so much. Yeah, yeah, universe. You get out beyond the borders of whatever is out there. It's hard to tell they're here until they're within our atmosphere. And I know they move quickly. You said, did I hear, hear this right? You put paint or like bubble wrap or something around it and deflect yeah, the is, sun? This is not the methods uh, that, that we are advocating for. Uh, well, no, you're not, you're not going to go bubble wrap a bunch of asteroids, but deflecting the sun is supposed to divert the science yeah. behind it? So, so what we want is to, to blow it up in the most efficient manner with, with a, a vehicle designed to, to blow as deep into it as possible. Now, the, the thing about the sunscreen and the whole pushing it away thing was, was, was me saying that there's other people advocating for all, all kinds of ways of deflecting this asteroid, whereas some of the more, in my personal view, freaky ways, but, but it's, this is a, maybe it's, it's a nice word, but, but the issue with it is that, that it's not very um, realistic and it's not easy and it takes a lot of time. So there are a lot of different ways that you could go about it in theory. The one we are advocating for is one that we are saying is, is very much realistic and could be done in a um, fairly fast manner, which is uh, what we want if we suddenly discover that one was heading our way and suspected to, to land some, uh, somewhere in the month from now. With that, Enric, I, I need to ask you, with the high-velocity uh, rocket that you want to build, what would be the explosive device on the rocket itself? Would it be uh, nuclear based or would it be uh, something of, you know, maybe a little more acceptable for some people to shoot out into space from Earth? That's a really good question, Joe. And it would be nuclear based. 
we experienced when we started this project in 2014 that the general community was not very uh, welcoming. The, by community, the, the Astro defense community, because that's not a thing, was not very welcoming towards the whole uh, uh, sending nukes to space. But um, I have to state first, first of all that, uh, that there will be no harm in space way far out in, in space for, for any of us to notice any radiation whatsoever. So the only real obstacle would be that uh, whether it would be uh, permissible to for the U.S. regarding China or Russia or the other way around, or would there be any political issues in that regard? And that's why for, for us to continue uh, our work, but we we had, as I mentioned, uh, funds from the base lawyer to make this assessment on, on the possibility of it being legal because it had to be nukes blowing the asteroid up. Right. Are there other like agencies out there? I mean, are there, I mean, everybody's kind of working in their respective field on this. Are you coming together with other scientists and other physicists and NASA guys to figure out the safest way? It seems like the blowing it up just to break it up and slow down the speed is the best way to do it. But I know it's also a safety hazard if it does hit Earth and the collateral damage on that. But you guys working jointly with other agencies to figure this out? Because it's not a matter, I think, of if, it's just when that, you know, you're going to see another one cross over, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Our project specifically has uh, been fairly low-key for, um, we started shutting it a bit, a bit down just before the coronavirus, while uh, the, the entrepreneurs and the partners in the project was working on other things. That's also why the website is not on. It's being revamped at the moment. But, uh, but yeah, we are partnering with um, Professor Fong Wee from uh, Iowa State University, who is an expert in, in the field and is the, the person behind the high V vehicle. And, uh, and they have an asteroid defense department at the university. So he's advocating for and, and has theorized uh, how that vehicle will work. So he's, he's essentially the brains behind the project, whereas we are the um, entrepreneurs and the business people behind the project. Is this, so is this like the heavy vehicle, is this something that you guys are trying to figure out how to send up on a rocket ship when it happens? Or is it something that you guys are going to put out there, kind of like a satellite that just stays up there to monitors that you could just kind of shift when you need to blow up something? Both could be possible, but the cheapest and at least the best diplomatic way would be to, to send it up with a rocket when it was relevant. Why can't we put something up there? Like we have the International Space Station. You have a lot of stuff up there. You know, the rovers on Mars are just up there you know, to grab research data and for protection. Why not build something out there just for that purpose? Or is it just too cost effective for such limited activity? Yeah, that's the main reason. And that's also, I mean, the reason why that we don't have a viable solution yet for uh, that's, that's actually in place in general is this the cost. And it's not as if it's a, a massively expensive one. A, a corona package in any given Western country would be uh, much more expensive. And so, um, but it, it, we, we tap into the whole that it doesn't seem relevant. There's cognitive biases. When will it hit? Maybe it, it's over in Siberia again, so it won't be relevant for us. And uh, you can compare to, to the, um, the problem of commons in economics, where if the problem is so big that it's everybody's problem, then, uh, then it's not my problem. And you sort of tap into that thinking. 
that's why the, the people who would be most likely to accept any funding in in it politicians is the least likely to spend uh, money on it. I have tons of questions about this, but I'm going to try to limit it. What about joining, partnering with uh, private companies? We've noticed that SpaceX is really working to get off the ground. We've got other entities as well, uh, Spacelink, that are you know getting satellites up there. Have you guys reached out to them and saying, "Hey, we've got this idea. If you know, if we spot a near Earth object, we have to take care of it." We have, in fact, and I can't disclose which private companies uh, that we have talked to, but we've spoken to one where the problem was that that they didn't want to be the only one, and that they were the only one saying yes at the time. Otherwise, so you sort of needed a a catch twenty two. Again, because um, there needs to be some sort of um, reasons why there's not an investment in it. We spoke with a lot of investors because we need to figure out how how best to get this finance. And as you're saying, with the private industry. And yeah, if um, people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk were to focus on these things, uh, I imagine it would be from a um, because they felt enough that they wanted to donate to something that would make them heroes, which would be awesome, or from a marketing and PR standpoint. But but there's no investment in it as such. Um, you could make a case where uh, you could be cheeky and, and then say, hey, we've built it. And then and then next time another country is in, in the hazardous zone, you can say, how much do you want to pay for it? Uh, <laughs> a bidding war is a bad story. But, but the yeah. thing is, though, what's funny is that we, people we've talked to there's so many natural properties of energy, water, resources in asteroids. So they harness a lot of these resources from these asteroids. Wouldn't it be easier to cast a huge net and then they could have these monster asteroids that just harvest so much of these properties and minerals and biosphere stuff that they need to rebuild and sustain up there? Wouldn't that be easier? Or is it just because they just, the size and the impact, you just, you can't really harness anything within those you just have to blow it up and then use the pieces, like recycling um, them? Well, there's there's two things in that. First of all, I want to say that asteroid mining, personally, is, is uh, an interesting field that uh, seems to be um, seems to be moving, uh, gaining some traction again. So uh, I, one would hope that, that that would make the have the asteroid defense field move along with it. But the important thing, and I guess I, I neglected to say that in, in the beginning, is that there is a um, huge difference between which kind of asteroids we're talking about. And uh, I'm not talking about the material part. There's also different kinds of that, um, but but the size of it. The dinosaur-destroying uh, sizes, very few. We know where all of those are. And also, when it comes to two, 300 kilometers in size, and even somewhat smaller, we, we know where they are. You need to go down to them. 30 meters diameters, uh, 50 meters in diameters, um, maybe 100 meters to diameters. Before we get to a huge number where we don't know where they are yet, and then we need to, um, one, find them, two, figure out what to do about them. And, and, and those are the ones we should be afraid of because those are the ones that are a lot off and that therefore statistically also could fall down somewhere and hit in a place we don't want them to. Do you guys track these? So you, you have obviously satellites and equipment. You know where they are. You know where hmm. as many as you can. 
But is it a matter this, this of is, this do you have them? Yeah. yeah, I mean, but do they, but so, so do we know like how many are out there and then they keep like, they monitor and tag them so they could keep an eye on their movements yeah. over time or? We do. There's a website by NASA. In fact, um, I, can, I can send it to you afterwards if your listeners want to to be able to find it. Uh, but um, there's a website from NASA uh, saying how many asteroids they've found and then giving you statistics about it. So it's actually possible to go in and, and find some information about it. Yeah, I've been to, I've been to that site. It's uh, www.nasa.gov forward slash planetary defense is the site. And so far, here's something that will really open up a lot of people's eyes is that they have identified as of 2019, 19,000 potential asteroids that could be dangerous to Earth that are considered NEOs or um, near Earth orbit Mm. type of asteroids. And I think, uh, you know, once they decide or discover the big one that could create some havoc on Earth. I think you guys are going to really going to be called to step up and decide, you know, what's the best way to handle this? Yeah, but 19,000 of them that could be damaging. That's still, I mean, that's 19,000 asteroids. Why? I mean, we're not waiting for, like you said, Joe, the big one, but the 19,000, Enrique, there has to be a way to sit there and say, if there's 19,000 recorded within the atmosphere that are of concern, it doesn't that open up the market for you, the demand to start sending this equipment up there? Unfortunately, uh, I want to say yes, but no. Um, there's money put in it, but um, the departments at NASA are struggling continually in, in figuring out how to uh, get sufficient funding for it. It's, yeah. um, I don't know how else to put it, but it's not that sexy, asteroids. That's uh, a more down-to-earth way of saying how, why it's difficult to crowdfund as well. It's not a sexy project. It sounds sexy, though. Emergency Asteroid Defense Project and um, Asteroids Defense, for sure. But, but when it comes to putting money in, it's a different issue. But to your point, though, Joe, like on the partner side, you have Tesla, you have Elon Musk, you have Bezos, who, like you said, Enrique, they have the money, the egos. I would think that would be a natural pivot to get them to kind of invest in and fund some of this right now. Yeah, and um, I would think so too. Uh, and and again, I, I don't want to disclose who we've talked to and it's also a long time ago now, but when people have that kind of money, they often know what they want to use it for. So as I said, there's, there's a large amount on the bank account and then there's no offers coming up. As Elon Musk, for example, He's working on seeing how he can get to Mars and he's working on open AI and everybody's passionate about their own project, even when they have billions of dollars. Yeah. With that said, let me go through the phases of the project that you would envision happening. Would it be something along the lines of if you, if you get the funding, if you get the design, if you get the rocket, would it be testing it on a near Earth object that isn't that dangerous as of yet? It, just to say that hey, we can do this? Yeah, yeah, it would. And um, that's quite important, Joe, to make sure that um, that we can show that this actually works and uh, you can send it up and that they can hit something. Making sure that whatever it targeted, that it will actually uh, hit it and then it will explode and things will happen. As, uh, because uh, you don't want to fail when it actually matters and there's an asteroid <laughs> coming towards us. And, yeah, so it needs to be tested first. 
Uh, with that, the, U- the United States and also uh, Japan have sent uh, landers to separate asteroids and are bringing back samples as we speak right now. Do you guys plan on learning something from those and, and learning maybe the composition of these some asteroids and, and what kind of uh, materials you guys are going to have to work with? To a degree, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting and um, and just as much the um, the whole aspect of of landing on an asteroid and uh, targeting it. That's the technology aspect that's uh, increasingly getting better and better. And with landing on asteroids and and bringing material to home is improving on that as well. And the composition can be different. They can be made of so many different things. It's uh, relevant as well. Uh, Although you are more over in in comets and uh, and metal asteroids before it becomes somewhat more difficult, Uh, a nuclear will do the the job in most instances, uh, luckily. Would there be a, a, a fear when it comes to blowing up an asteroid that you may have blown up the asteroid, but you created maybe uh, 20 different chunks of asteroid to deal with? Or would that be kind of like, OK, we've destroyed the big one, so we just have to deal with these uh, smaller pieces that may not be that much of a, uh, you know, a threat to Earth? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, yes and no, in that um, when the asteroid has that size and, it's, and if it's blown up, so far away as one would expect if we know it 14 days in advance, for example, then um, then this wouldn't be a real issue. However, if it was the case, then um, then you have to look at it from uh, a statistical and, and realistic viewpoint and then say, whatever we can do would be better. It's a utilitarian way of looking at it where we have to decrease the number of, uh, of casualties. Uh, so, so whatever we can do that makes sure that, that uh, more survive in the method, the better. I have a question. I know you guys are talking about, you know, it's a good topic of safest way to do this, but you mentioned earlier, or you or Joe did, you're using nuclear weapons to blow these up. Are you guys concerned or is anybody concerned with, I know it's way out there in space, the fallout from the nuclear fallout after it blows up? Because I don't know, since you're so high up there, Above the atmosphere, I don't think that will ever reach into the Earth's atmosphere. But is that an issue? No, it wouldn't be an issue. Uh, I wouldn't be able to tell you why, because unfortunately, I'm not uh, a physicist. But the physicists in the field assure me that it would in, in no way be, be relevant. So no, that, um, that's not a problem. It sounds scary because it's uh, an atomic bomb. That's a scary thing, very much so. But better... To- throw them out in space, nukes that that, that shut up. One question I have with that is I think the hardest part of this is not getting the funding, is not building the rocket. I think is selling people on the idea that you could send a nuclear device from the earth out into space because, I mean, as we've seen with SpaceX and other um, test modules, that sometimes these rockets go up and they blow up in our atmosphere. I mean, yeah. because of a, a mess, uh, something that may have happened to the rocket itself. I think that may be the hardest sell on anything. That, and in extension to it, the fact that you, I know you care, Joe, because you're a communicator, but if it was Joe on the street instead, and I, I approached him and, and then told him about this problem, told him about the nukes that I wanted to send out in space, as you just said, and then afterwards I told him that that he should care, that, and he should also 
uh, contribute to paying for it, either through his taxes, as Americans are already doing to some extent, but that he should be part of it. Most people would say, I have my own problems. I'm not understanding that it is statistically also. Everybody's problem. That that Everybody's problem. problem. Like climate change is a very good example that more people are talking about. But psychologically, it's the same It's the same issue of understanding that it is everybody's problem. So, Henrik, what, what made you get into this? Let's talk about your background prior to creating the Asteroid Defense Program. I mean, what led you into doing this? And what is your background primarily based on science and math and space? Or did you just pivot halfway through the career? I uh, pivoted. So uh, my uh, background is diverse, but um, my uh, studies way back had to do with international politics. I guess that's the closest you could get. You could, you could argue for a lot of things in an asteroid defense project. But I did some entrepreneurial work that has to do with, with teaching and um, uh, innovating education. And as I was saying, I was working and advising in crowdfunding as well. So I just jumped on it. I'm a very, um, let's go do something crazy. I'm, I'm up for an idea and, and um, kind of mindset. So, uh, so yeah, that's all it took. And I'm passionate and I'm passionate about a lot of things. And, and I easily get passionate about a lot of things. Uh, so to me, it made sense. The last thing that sold it to me was... Actually, that the whole thing about how, how not many people was working on it and the, the deflection method that we're advocating for at the time, more people are, are accepting of it now. But at the time in 2014, not many were. And that means that this, this method uh, wasn't is the only one where you could act in a fast way within a few weeks or even within a few months. So to me, I, I wanted to work in something where you could make an impact and you can make an impact in, in a large scale and save the most lives per dollar, so to say. And that's what I saw in this project. In many ways, when I work on something, I would like there to be some sort of recognition of, of making the most impact, but all of making the most change out of what you do. Is this something, I mean, I know what you guys are working on, but is this whole asteroid defense program scalable to other parts of space exploration and research that you guys are looking at down the road? Um, I'm not sure what you mean. Well, I, you guys, I mean, you're, you're working on that, you know, this asteroid defense program, but are there other areas from commerce to research and robotics or other areas that you guys are looking to pivot off to down the road? Because it seems like this is a really long journey, the funding and all the problems you guys have to face right now to get up there. Are there other areas you guys could branch off to that within the same, mm. within the same space, but that sounded kind of funny to say. No, not not really, not not in our uh, particular focus or interest. I'm working on quite a few different things with other partners, but with this specific group, the whole intention was to just focus on the asteroid defense in in itself and ensure that we had an, a deflection method in in place. So there's no, and also because it's an it's an NGO, we set it up as an NGO to make sure that there was no conflict of interest, and we didn't want to communicate that we wanted to earn money on it. We later considered ways, whether we should change that to see if we can find a way for investors to make it more viable and put it down in a different direction. But 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 it's not supposed to be a for-profit. The message is that we just want to put the right partners together and ensure that it actually happens. Is this going to be one of those things, 
Henrik, that um, you see, I mean, you're you're in the baby steps right now of doing this. You started in 2014. You guys are still making steps towards, you know, refining the idea and also getting uh, people to invest in this. Is planetary defense going to be something along the lines of it's going to be solidified between all countries? Or do you see that several different countries are going to have their several different ways of trying to attack this problem? It's a political question, Joe. I like it. So I'll see if I can predict the future. Given how it looks right now, then, then probably there will be more of a competition than, than a collaboration. I can imagine that um, China, India, the US would have their own individually, uh, Russia, instead of working together. You do see collaboration in space, in the space station. And um, what was it? There was, I don't know, I remember if it was uh, Russia or India that... Um, or China that is making a um, making something in space right now where they was asking other countries whether they want to join. So it's as if there's more collaboration in space, but that's also because probably because it's so new. When Whenever there's uh, money in it, uh, then there's politics in it, and then there's competition in it. So, um, so I imagine as it evolves, you won't get as much competition as you would like. And uh, as with many other things, Unfortunately, people will probably get hurt before we can collaborate. Because we had, we were on one of our other podcasts, Joe, was it with Dan Lopez? I think it was Dan. Oh, God, it was one of the guys. And their whole big thing was collaboration with other countries up there, that it's so much easier for them to come together, put their politics and opinions that we deal with down here every day aside because they're more of a team unit up there trying to explore the same thing. We had an interesting, yeah. I mean, it wasn't really political, but it was, it was about how much better we get along with other countries that were at war and against down here. But the guys mm-hmm. at the National Space Station are such a great team because they're all out there together, you know, sharing ideas, sharing knowledge. They're more open to wanting to share what they're working yeah. on versus being down here in politics. And I can imagine the satisfaction. And that's how science works as well. I mean, oftentimes you would see uh, when there's new research coming out and then you see this American scientist or this German scientist. But in fact, most likely it's made from groups collaborating all over the world where people can actually come together and be away from politics. But I still hold with the answer uh, of if it scales and becomes big and, and more money, and there's a struggle for resources, uh, such as asteroid mining, then uh, politics will come in and decide who, need, who should have those resources. And that's where the space lawyers come in. <laughs> it is, exactly, Joe. <laughs> the wild, wild west up there. So I have a question yeah. for you, Henry, because we run out of time. I mean, and I know there's a lot of great scientists and physicists. I mean, there's such great brain power around the world. But I feel like, at least recently, and this is just my personal opinion, yeah. is most of these guys that we're talking to on our space series on Media Mavis podcast, most of them are from the Netherlands. Most of them, they're, I mean, I'm not saying there's not great brain power here in the US, but if I feel like if you had to choose where most of the knowledge and intellect is coming from when it comes to space, I feel like we're always heading back to your neck of the woods where these experts <laughs> are coming from. Is there any, is that just because where I'm looking right now, or do you think that's where more of the science is based and the exploration of research is in the Netherlands? I want to say thanks, uh, as it's in my backyard, but I think it's a coincidence. There's good brain power all over the world. That's that's a diplomatic answer. There's, there's, my personal opinion is that 
probably most of it is in the US in terms of, of how you still have the most um, expensive universities and, and quite a lot of money. So uh, it's probably a coincidence in terms of, of where you look. There's many more interesting space people and some of them are in your backyard too, Sarah. Yeah, no, we've had a few of them on. It's just, we've had such tremendous conversations beyond just the products and the mission coming from some of these scientists out of the Netherlands. Yeah. They're more open about talking about the trajectory and what they're working on and the plans and where they're collaborating. I think it's a little bit easier, more open for them to have mm. these conversations than here in the U.S. Yes. We do have a good collaboration in uh with ESA and space agencies in, in Europe and uh, between countries. Uh, and probably some of that mentality is, is what you're seeing in this. Yeah. Okay, it was so good having you on, Henrik. I know it's getting late over there and we're wrapping up, but I wanted to thank you for coming on and joining us today. Very Thanks enlightening. having me, yeah. It was great. It's, uh, exciting. If for anybody who has any, I mean, I know you said the website's being redone. Where's a good place to send anybody who has any questions or any interest in the um, asteroid defense program where can we send all of the listeners send them to our facebook page instead okay okay and what is that which is the uh, just asteroid defense program on facebook we just want to make sure everybody knows because i'm sure there's so many people with so many more questions on this we want to make sure everybody has access and uh and they can uh, asteroid defense is what it's called. They can. They are most welcome to ask any questions, or if I said something that's not true or not true anymore, they are most welcome to be rude as well, and I, I'll make sure to be diplomatic. <laughs> but yeah, on Facebook, in the meantime, until you get the website up, it's called Asteroid Defense. Perfect. Thank you so much, Henrik, for being on the show today. I appreciate the time. Joe, good spending another Thursday morning with you. Definitely, it's fun. Thank you, guys. To see everybody next week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Media Mavens podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or download past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens podcast on your favorite podcast provider or on the Evergreen Podcast Network. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, log on to www.mediamavenspodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.